Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we demystify the prefrontal cortex and talk about self-regulation, pausing, thinking, reflecting, and taking a better charge of our brain so that we can take better decisions, live more fulfilling life, or even find contentment along the way. And there are many, many experts and researchers who shape our thought process. And it's such a pleasure because we have somebody who's very special, who has been very influential in my understanding of value of meditation, uh, even more so than a guru might have told me (laughs) coming from India. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Uh, Sarah Lazar. How are you today? Thank you. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So let me give a quick background about you to our audience. Um, uh, Dr. Lazar is an associate researcher in psychiatry department at Mass General Hospital and assistant uh, professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School. Uh, The focus of her research is to elucidate the neural mechanism underlying the beneficial effects of yoga and meditation, both in clinical settings and in healthy individuals. She has been practicing yoga and mindfulness meditation since 1994. Wow. And her research has been covered by numerous new outlets, including New York Times, USA Today, CNN, and WebMD. So let's dive deep into this topic. So number one, first question, since we are going to talk about mindfulness and mind, can we define mind? You are a neuroscientist. What do you think mind is all about? Okay, yeah, diving right into the deep end here. Okay, <laughs> right. So the, the most simple, the, so people often make the distinction between brain and mind. And so lots of times people will say that, you know, brain is a hardware and mind is a software. I right? love that. So mind is the, you know, the thinking, the cognizing, the, you know, what we think of as, as thinking, I'd say. So is it true? Uh, I often hear various numbers, but, you know, there are, almost more than 2 million thoughts a minute that come to mind and we can attend to only 40 of them at a time. Is that even legit? I had not heard that. I have no idea. (laughs) 40 (laughs) seems like a lot. So, um, I mean, I imagine that 40 are happening, but I don't know that we can attend to them all. Wait, 40 a minute or 40 a second? 40 a minute. 40 40 a second, sorry. But what we are not able to attend to in fullest capacity, we are able to even be aware that they may be coming our way. So I'm thinking a lot of this is sensory information, just information about the world. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, because certainly, so, I mean, just thinking about it, I mean, obviously, you know, so just sitting here, you know, your entire area of your skin is sending signals into your brain to say, okay, you know, there's something beneath and behind you, you know? And so something suddenly happened and like, I don't know, the thing fell apart, you know, my, my couch fell apart, <laughs> your chair fell apart, you know, you would instantly feel it coming away from your body. And so I guess that is, but it's all subconscious though, I guess. I mean, it's not like, I mean, I don't think you could consciously pay attention to 40, but I believe that, yeah, probably 40 pieces and probably much more than that, you know, but I, so, I really don't know. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. 
It's it's such a uh, interesting thought because here we are, and I come from Eastern uh, philosophy and religion, uh, uh, and talking about the source of your misery is uh-huh. the mind, the uncontrolled mind, unchecked mind. Yes. And um, when once I uh, my meditation journey is not as deep and wide as yours. I started maybe 12, 13 years ago, uh, taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I notice is this idea of not reacting to it. So can you first set us up with the idea of mindfulness and then mindful meditation? Are they two distinct things or they are the same? Excellent question. Okay. Yeah. They're a little bit, there's there's an overlap. So the way I like to explain it is, um, so mindfulness is just a quality and anyone can do it anytime, anywhere. And so, um, and really, it's kind of sort of awareness, but it's a, a self-reflective awareness. So you know that you're aware. Like, so right now, you know, you're aware of like all the things that are in your field of vision, right? And so you're aware of that. But then when I point this out to you, then it's like, oh, yes, I know I'm consciously aware of the fact that, okay, I'm looking at, you know, this thing over here and that thing over there. Like, I'm, I'm you know, it's like meta awareness is what it's sometimes referred to as. It's like, yes. okay, I'm, I'm actively aware that my mind is paying attention to X at this moment. So again, anyone can do it at any time, but we tend not to do it. And so that's where mindfulness meditation comes in. It's, it's practicing it so that it becomes more of a habit and it becomes easier to do when you really need it. And so the example I like to give is um, playing soccer. So if you, if I put you on a soccer field all by yourself with the ball in front of the goals, of course you could kick the ball into the goal. But if I put a goalie there and a bunch of other defenders and then everyone's running around and screaming and yelling, you know, could you get that ball in the goalpost? Maybe, maybe not, <laughs> you know? And so, but if you practice and, you know, then, you know, there's a greater chance that you're going to actually be able to get the ball in. And so similarly, that's the idea with mindfulness is that, you know, if you got deadlines and, you know, angry coworkers and, you know, traffic on the way home, you know, and you're all like this, you're not, the mindfulness is not going to be there. But if you practice it, if you don't practice it, but if you practice it regularly, it's much more likely to come up in those sorts of situations. And it's so interesting. And you talk about this in your talks and uh, as part of a mindfulness community, there's a great and deep, meaningful conversation about this, that mindfulness is staying present, Mm -hmm. being open, Mm -hmm. caring deeply, but in a non-judging way. Yes. So can you help us understand, because there's a like a big, um, you know, without the cultural background, I feel um, the Eastern philosophy has seeped into, uh, you know, Western culture without the, the backdrop. So yeah. that mindfulness can become self-referencing and can become selfish way of um, being <laughs> with oneself and, uh-huh. and warding off the world. So can you talk about these two things? One is non-judging way, yes. uh, but not indifferent. Because that can be bad, but also um, self-referencing way, but not an enlightened self-interest way, not a selfish way. Yes. Okay. So two great questions. So I think you didn't hit the nail on the head. Hit the nail on the head. Yes. Um, When you talk about it's not indifference. So the non-judging, but it's not indifference. So what is it? So at least from the Buddhist tradition, it's a faculty called equanimity, right? So equal Love that balance. Word. Yeah, it's a really great word. And the idea is that um, so being judgy versus evaluating. So right mm-hmm. now you could say, okay, well, 
um, you know, the room is a certain temperature. And maybe the room is kind of hot or it's kind of cold. Can I just notice, okay, the room is hot versus oh, it's so hot. Oh, I need to get this fixed. And, you know, oh, I just hate it so much when it's just so hot like this. Right. And so that's, you know, the valuation is it's hot. The, oh my God, I don't like it. That's the being judgy. And so can we, you know, cause you want to be able to keep the discernment. It's not like you just go around the world just saying everything is fine. Everything is perfect. It's like, no, okay. The room is hot. I need to do something, address it, but I don't need to add the, oh, to it. Um, so that's, and so that's where the equity may need no drama. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, um, when my teachers talks about it, it's a, is the heart. Um, so that's sort of like in a sort of a generic, but in terms of dealing with other people, is it, can you do it with an open heart versus a closed heart? So if say, you know, I came to you and saying, I had this story of like, oh my goodness, you know, I was in a car accident, I got injured and this happened to me and that happened to me. And I had this whole long sub story, you know, you could just be like, Sarah, okay, that, you know, too bad. Sorry. Right. And so, and so you're not reactive. Right. And so you're not reacting because you're being cold hearted <laughs> versus can you say, Oh, Sarah, I'm really sorry to hear that. And so you can be moved, but not overwhelmed by it. Right. And so your that. heart can remain open and saying, yeah, okay. I feel you. I, you know, I, I feel sorry for you. I, I hear you. You're in a lot of pain, but you're not being swept away by it. That's really the idea of it is that you can, you can still care, but in a nice balanced way. And I love that. I think there's what you, you just embedded there is this um, opposite of psychic numbing, psychic numbing, you know, there's Paul Slavic actually wrote an article about that. And I think that eventually you get so bombarded by all the woos of the world that you feel like I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I can bear, bear this. I can contribute this. So yeah. this, um, can people be mindful without trying? Yes, some yeah, for sure. And I think a lot has to do with some people are just very mindful naturally. And I think a lot has to do with, you know, your upbringing and your constitution and all those sorts of things, right? And so, because um, again, it's just this awareness, and we're all aware of something. And the question is, what are you aware of? And because mm. that's so can it get, a little bit depends on this definition, right? Because there's the awareness, but then there's the non reactive awareness. And again, like the non reactivity, again, you know, some people are just mellow. You know, and they're just naturally, you know, things just roll off their back and things don't bother them versus other people are like, you know, any little thing and they're, you know, yelling and screaming. So, and again, I think there's a lot to do with, you know, genetics and upbringing and, you know, life history and all those sorts of things. So, um, you know, and it's not like it's a, it's an absolute on or off, you know, it's, I think we all have different degrees of, of how mindful we are, I'd say. So like they're dialing up or dialing down and some people have better control over their own dial. Exactly. Yeah. It's so interesting. So a lot of my work also is with people with ADHD. And I mean, it was very clear when I worked with people with concussions and brain injuries that these states, that hyperreactivity was so high. But then yeah. I see a developmental disorders such as ADHD and a couple of things I noticed that their default mode network checking out, just roaming of the brain. Uh, they're far readily able to let the mind take its own trip uh -huh. uh, without any control over it. So it's not judging, but it's just not presencing. Uh -huh. But then second thing I see is also not having any interest in the welfare of others. Now, uh -huh. maybe generalizing a little bit, but there's just general indifference 
Um, and so they, they're often perceived as selfish or um, callous. Mm-hmm. And, and so is there any, do we have any understanding of who is more able to do this? So uh, I love this explanation that temperamentally, some people may be naturally gravitating towards that capacity to be present. Uh-huh. But are there developmental disorders that make you go away from that capacity? Uh, well, it sounds like ADHD is. <laughs> <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't heard that about ADHD. That's interesting. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's a short answer. But, yeah, no, I think, you know, certainly trauma probably is my guess. You know, um, you know, potentially maybe something like schizophrenia, something like that are Asperger's, I think, potentially also, you know, and, you know, and autism, those sorts of things. Um, and again, it's hard to know like how much is brain wiring, like intrinsic brain wiring versus how much is, you know, adaptation to adverse life events. I mean, I, I just, just don't know. You know, again, I, I don't know much about developmental. Got it. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. And that's, so that's the other question you asked about, like, you know, is mindfulness just becoming selfish and self-absorbed? So it's not what you do, it's how you do it. And I think this is where a really good teacher is going to be useful. Cause the thing is a lot of people I find not a lot of people, I find that some people, some people will use it as just a way to start check out and kind of just, you know, chill for a little bit, shall we say. But it's, when you really talk to them, it's like, well, they're not really doing what the teacher said. They're not really trying to learn. It's just sort of like, okay, they found this way to sort of like check out and have a little quiet time or whatever. And that they're doing their own thing and they don't, they're not really paying attention. They're not really trying to do it properly. That's in my experience, very limited experience, but that's, you know, the, you know, I definitely read some people like that. Like where if you really earnestly, you know, if you have a good teacher and you're really trying to do what's being told, I think it'd be extremely difficult to do it in that way. You know, especially if you're getting good feedback and work. And that's why I think it's really important to work with a teacher. This is the question I always get is like, oh, I just use the Headspace app. You know, I just, I just use an app or, you know, whatever. And I think, okay, that's good. I have nothing wrong with using apps, but you also need a teacher for this very reason, because it's really easy to sort of pick and choose what you want from the apps and not really doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so having the person to actually get the feedback from you know, and so, but then like during the week, you know, so you go to the class, you have a teacher, you talk to the teacher, you get the real information, but then, you know, during the week, if you need a little help with an app, that's fine. I've got no problem with that. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. This reminds me of the uh, concept of the deliberate practice. So uh-huh. you can do practice and then you come to a plateau. If you don't increase the challenge and you don't receive feedback, mm-hmm. you never cross over that, uh, you know, exactly. plateau, right? Exactly. 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 Um, brilliant. So one quick question before we get into your research, the, you know, in mindfulness uh, w- literature or field, contemplative science field, they talk about uh, challenges, <laughs> you know, in, in Buddhism, they're called hindrances uh, that actually make it really hard to um, mindfully meditate. Uh, what are, what are your thoughts about that? These, these, these one of the common challenge I'll explain uh, to the listeners, which uh, is really now wanting to get good at meditation. <laughs> That's considered opposite of what you need to do, be doing when you're mindfully meditating. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's not considered a hindrance, but that's, um, well, that's just conceit, right? So, <laughs> well, that's considered striving or no? Yeah, definitely. Well, it depends. It depends I on see. the, it's funny, I just last, this past week I was on a meditation retreat and the teacher had talked about this. Uh, Cause was, this question came up. 
So there's this idea of, so in Buddhism, the whole idea is that most of the problem comes because of this big sense of me, 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 and I, and I'm trying to achieve something, right? And so if you're doing it with that kind of mindset, like I'm going to be an expert meditator, and I'm going to achieve enlightenment, and I'm going to do this, yeah, that's a problem. But if it's more that, oh, I see this helps me, and I'm you know, I'm motivated to practice because, you know, I see this as helping me. And it's more of a, you know, just making a dedication to it. And actually in the original language of the Buddha, there's two different words for striving. One for striving for self-aggrandizement and the other one for striving for like, Excellent. you know, this non-selfing way. And they specifically use that other word. Um, and so, uh, so, you, so it's a little bit different, you know, so you can do it the same, the same thing, but you can do it in a slightly different way. And so the thing is, cause if you're sitting there saying, oh, I'm a great meditator, yeah, it's not going to work. And so you really need to just like, let go of all that and let go of outcome and just be like, okay, I'm going to do this because I know it's good for me. And I love that. So that brings us to your, um, so I want to start with your first study where you studied the long-term meditator meditators versus the control group. Can you tell us a little bit about how you set it up and why did you take, decide to take that uh, direction? Yeah. So my very first study, right, like you said, it was uh, 20 long-term meditation practitioners and 15 controls. And because um, at that point, you know, we didn't know a whole lot. There weren't that many studies on meditation. And especially putting them in the MRI scanner, I felt like I wanted, because I never published the rest of the study. It's actually interesting that my first study got published. Uh, the part of it that got published was about the brain structure, but that was actually not the reason why I did the study. <laughs> the reason I did the study is because I wanted to look at brain activity during meditation. And I thought, okay, in order to study brain activity during meditation, I need people who are really experts. You know, I can't just take people who've been doing this a little while. I need people who've really been doing this for a while and can really go in there and, you know, meditate in the scanner. And so I did that and I put them in the scanner. And then, like I said, then, um, but then what we noticed, we did analysis on the brain structure. And we're like, wow, look at this. And so that's what got published. And that's sort of what, you know, <laughs> the start of my rise to fame, uh, shall we say. So, yes. that, yeah. You're the gray matter queen. <laughs> I, am. I, am. I am. So, uh, so that was really, and that was the thing, because at that point, people were just like, what? You know, they're, because there's an idea back then, like, well, you're just sort of sitting there quietly. And you know, a lot of people thought it was just like, you know, foo foo. And, um, you know, they just, you know, the thought that, that meditation could do anything to your brain was just like, what? No. And so the having actual evidence that the brain actually changed. I remember the first time I actually showed the data, it was actually to a group of meditators, right? It was a little conference for meditation practitioners. And I showed the data and they literally gasped. Like the whole audience was like, it's just like, oh. yeah. <laughs> so it was like, you know, they didn't even believe that the brain, you could detect changes in the brain, you know, from long-term meditators. So that was, that was pretty, that was a pretty cool moment. So um, can you talk about, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but you talked, you saw increased amount of gray matter in the insulin sensory region and yes. gray matter volume increase is actually cognitive change, right? It's actually improvement in quality of your intelligence even. Well, okay. So, so versus right, white matter, a lot of pushback from this, that first paper, right? So we just said, Hey, the brain is bigger and it's in these regions 
And there had been a couple of studies demonstrating that generally speaking, yes, more gray matter means more ability. So for instance, um, you know, professional musicians versus amateur musicians versus non-musicians, right? That was one of the classic studies, right? Um, and there had been like one, there one at that point, one longitudinal study where they looked at, um, they taught people how to juggle, right? And then the area of the brain involved in detecting visual motion had gotten bigger, right? And so there's this idea that yes, more is better. But to be fair, you know, we didn't give them any sort of tests or anything like that. So we really didn't know what the more gray matter meant, right? Mm. And so it's consistent with more activity and more better performance related to those regions, but we couldn't actually say that. And and so I think maybe if you can explain to our audience the distinction between gray matter and white matter, yep. because 60% of the brain is white matter, right? Yes. 40% is gray matter. Yes. Uh, so it's less, but it does all the connections and yes. talking to each other, right? Right. So the way I like to think about it is, you know, neurons look kind of sort of like trees. So you get the trunk of the tree, lots of branches and lots of roots. And so the white matter is the trunk of the tree. And so it's just sending information between the roots and the branches. And so the gray matter is where the branches of one tree interact with the roots of another tree. Oh, I love it. <laughs> love it. Yeah. So that's where the, all the... Cool that way. Yeah. So... I love that. So, so this ability to communicate, communicate with each other. And then once communication is established, then the, they become thinner because it's more robust pathway. Right. Well, so that- it depends. Right. So sometimes you can get, right. You can get thinning, you can get thickening. So the other thing that's important to know is that in the gray matter, there's the neurons, you know, the ends of the neurons, but there's also, there's glia and astrocytes, you know, so the helper cells, there's also blood vessels, and so in animals, they did things where like, you know, they took an animal and they trained it on some task, like running through a maze or doing some sort of task. And then they would chop up the brains or they would scan them before and after, right? And show that, okay. And then they would chop up the brains. And what they showed is that, you know, sometimes depending on the type of task that was learned, sometimes you get more neurons or more branching of neurons, but sometimes you get more blood vessels or more um, of these, you know, astrocytes and glia and whatnot. And so all of them support increased function. So uh-huh. we think it maybe it's more gray matter, you know, more, more neural, like no more neurons, right? Cause you know, we've got a bias towards neurons, but in reality it could be blood vessels or astrocytes, but in a way it doesn't sort of matter because we know that all of them contribute to improved function, improved functioning. Yeah. And what's so other part of that study was the actual frontal cortex. I mean, sorry, yeah. your, your gray matter in the uh, frontal cortex, yeah. which is typically associated with uh, higher functions, such as working memory and executive control. Yeah. So what did you make of that? How do you explain that? Because that is so difficult to yeah. facilitate. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was, I was just like, I was stoked when I saw that one. <laughs> I was like, wow. Um, and it's uh, in particular there, we found, cause one of our, my co-authors, um, was Jeremy Gray. And he had done a study with um, fluid intelligence, right? So IQ, uh, fluid intelligence. And what he showed is that activity in the exact same spot that we saw getting larger in the long-term meditators was the same spot that is active during a, a fluid intelligence task. Wow. Yeah. And so that was really kind of cool. So I was just like, ooh, 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 they were doing something. And so then we actually did a follow-up study where we gave people the food intelligence, you know, the food intelligence test, you know, so Raven's advanced progressive matrices. Say that five times, five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> I just call it Ray Osteroid. That's it. 
Oh, oh, oh. No, no, not Ray Oster. The Raven. Oh, then which one? Raven. Ravens. Uh, oh, Ravens. Okay. I said that fast and I slurred my words. Sorry. Ravens Advanced Progressive Matrices. Got it. Got it. You gave Ravens. I thought, I thought uh, because also Ray Osterite is also great to yes. capture this complex planning and execution. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we, we didn't do that though. We did Ravens. And so, um, and we showed, and with that one, we did long-term meditators, long-term yoga practitioners and controls. And we showed that both the meditators and the controls had higher scores on Ravens than the meditators and, sorry, meditators and yogis had higher scores than the controls. And that it was related to another metric that's related to food intelligence, which has to do with how connected the brain is. Like little different parts of the brain. So the idea being that in order to solve these really complex problems, you need you know this part of the brain talking to that part of the brain talking to this part of the brain, and there needs to be really good information flow between all the different parts of the brain. And so we showed that yeah that 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 that's preserved with advanced age, um, and that 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 IQ is also preserved with advanced age. Wow, and I mean, if that was not convincing, then I don't know what. But your second study was even more fascinating. And so, can you talk about the the study with the those yeah. who received uh, MBSR treatment or yes. training? So right. So for that study, what we did. So that was great. We said, okay, well, these are long term meditators. And so again, I got a lot of pushback from that first study, saying, well, you know, meditators, they're just different. You know, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe people with thick insula are the ones who are more likely to start meditation or stick with meditation, right? So maybe it has to do with a natural ability, right? You can't prove that the meditation made it bigger. And to be fair, that's very, very true. We don't know, you know, chicken and egg, right? Also, a lot of people say, well, you know, maybe it's because, you know, a lot of them are vegetarian and they're taking time out of their day and, you know, all these sorts of reasons why it couldn't possibly be the meditation. So to address those issues... Um, I thought back to that study I told you about the juggling. So the juggling study, what they did is they took people who had never juggled before, scanned them, taught them how to juggle, and scanned them again three months later. And they showed in just three months, there was a change in brain structure in just three months. And so I thought, okay, well, let's try it. And so there's this great program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, or MBSR, and it's a secular program. And you learn how to meditate, and you're told to practice every day for 40 minutes. And it's only two months long, but I thought, okay, well, you know, who knows? Two months, three months, you know, let's see. Because in the animals, you can get changes in the brain structure in like a week or two with animals. So it's like, okay, well, you know, let's see what happens. So we did that. So we uh, put people either through the MBSR program or we scanned them eight weeks apart. And then they went into the, uh, the MBSR program. And I showed that relative to the controls, there were several brain regions that got bigger in the meditation group. And so in just two months, you really can change the structure of your brain just by meditating. Well, there are some rock star areas of the brain that kind of changed. And so maybe we can talk about them uh, one by one. So one is the posterior cingulate cortex, yes. which I guess function is not fully clear, but definitely associated with default mode network. Yes, correct? the main hub of the default mode network, yes. So tell us what, what does the default mode network do and how did that got impacted by meditation? Right. So... Um, and I was going to jump ahead. So not only the posterior cingulate, but also the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is also part of the default mode network. So we're going to talk about both of them. So, right. So what is the default mode network? So let's define how it got, came to be in the first place. So you would think, most people would think that if I put me and you and 20 other people into the MRI scanner and just said, okay, sit there and do nothing. 
and we're going to scan your brain while you're doing nothing. You would think that our brains would look very, 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 very different because, you know, I'm thinking about my science and you're thinking about, you know, your, you know, your clients or your, 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 your patients and, you know, someone else is thinking about the stock market. And so you'd think that we, all our brains look very, very different, but it turns out when you put people and you just tell them to think about just whatever, the brain activity is actually fairly similar. And there are some subtle differences, but mostly it's very similar. And what you see is this network of brain regions called the default mode network. This idea that when you told them just lie there and do nothing, there's a network. And over many years, what they've shown is that that network is involved in um, uh, thinking about self-related processes. Because the idea is that when you're not thinking about anything in particular, you're thinking about something and you're usually thinking about how it's relevant to me. So it's like, I need to go to the store and that's what do I need while I'm at the store? I need to get, you know, I want to make this dish. And so, and so it's all these things that are relevant to me and, Oh, that person said this to me. And I said that to them, you know, and so there's usually has something to do with me. Um, and, uh, the, as I mentioned, the main, main part of the default mode network that's always on is this part called the, posterior cingulate cortex post posterior cingulate cortex or the say that five times <laughs> yeah seriously yeah the pcc i'm a tongue twister pcc pcc <laughs> for posterior cingulate cortex and then the hippocampus is sort of like a secondary part of it um and so the hippocampus course is memories and learning um the pcc again so it's the main node of the default network it's also it's implicated a lot in mind wandering in general so if you have someone lying in the scanner and doing something, the best indicator that their mind is starting to wander and they're going off t- task is the PCC activity starts to come up. Uh, the PCC and the hippocampus are the two main regions that are impacted by Alzheimer's disease and they get wiped out in Alzheimer's disease. And that's why it's so important, this research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then uh, I said, it's also sort of self-related processes. And so, um, and sometimes it's important to know, sometimes more gray matter is more activity and sometimes more gray matter is less activity because we have inhibitory neurons. And that's what we think is happening with the PCC because what we know from other people's research since then is that when you're actually meditating, the PCC gets turned off very strongly and treat like, so after eight weeks of practicing, even when you're lying there doing nothing, the default mode network is less active after MBSR than before MBSR. So it really does seem like it turns it off and keeps it off. And so that's what we think that increased PCC is doing is that it's turning off and keeping off that default mode network so that you're spending less time mind wandering, less time thinking about yourself and more time in this open, you know, uh, awareness state. Because if I can ask you about that, one interesting thing I thought, because typically when we think about hippocampus, we think about memory and forming new, uh, you know, the particularly the left uh, hippocampus is more verbal processing, correct? Uh-huh. So I, I found that very interesting that the left hippocampal activity had gone down uh, uh-huh. along with. So is it that also re- referencing to self-talk diminishing? Possibly, possibly. Um, and it's... Um maybe self-related talk. Because again, this idea being, so what is the hippocampus's contribution? The hippocampus is, you know, in order to access your old memories, you have to use the hippocampus, right? So if I'm just sitting here 
the moment I'm looking out a window, looking at a tree, if I'm just sitting there looking at the tree and saying, oh, this is a really nice tree. And, oh, you know, there's some buds coming out. I don't need my hippocampus. So I'm not thinking about me. Right. So there's still plenty of self-talk or huh. talk going on. Right. There's plenty of talk happening, but it's not all about me. And, and, and so I don't need to, you know, so again, it's sort of getting away from the, it's not about me and just aware of what's actually happening in the moment. Got it. So that was fascinating because um, uh, the, so this is like, you know, you're really sharpening the hold on the dial, so to speak. I don't know if the dial always exists. You just have your hands on it. The third area, which was very interesting, the the TPJ, the temporal parietal junction. Uh And it is my favorite area because it's involved in mentalizing that theory of mind, you know, thinking Mm -hmm. about other people's thinking. Uh, Can you Talk us, uh, talk to us about that. Why did we see some changes there, robust changes? Yeah. So it's actually interesting. So we've actually found, we have two more papers now where we have identified the TPJ again. Oh, and really? So, yeah, 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 yeah. And so definitely it's theory of mind. I'll talk about that in a second. But it's also, and now we're thinking it's more probably about top-down control. Because it's interesting, the TPJ does a bunch of different things. And it's looking like it's probably more about directing what you pay attention to because it's part of the attention network. Hmm. And so, but it might also be, because what's interesting is that the TPJ, like you said, is part of theory of mind. What is theory of mind? Theory of mind is guessing or understanding, maybe understanding is better, understanding what someone else is thinking. So the classic example is if, you know, you and I go into the kitchen and, um, I put my leftover uh, food in the fridge and then I leave and then you take out that food and throw it away. And then someone were to ask you, okay, what is, so where does Sarah think her food is? Right. So most of people will say, okay, Sarah thinks her food's in the fridge. Right. Because right. You know, you know that, but um, people with Asperger's or not Asperger with, you know, um, well, Asperger's and autism, you know, lots of times they, they have really poor theory of mind. They'll say she thinks it's in the trash because they can't think about what the other person's thinking. Like they know it's in the trash. And so of course everyone else thinks it's in the trash, right? They can't separate and track their thinking about their thinking and others knowledge about the truth or experience or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. And so being able, and so it's a key component of empathy because right. Cause in order to have empathy with you, I have to understand how you're thinking and feeling. So if I have no idea how you're thinking and feeling, all I know is like, okay, well, you know, you're telling me, you know, oh, you know, my car crashed or something. I can't, I can keep coming with car crashes. I don't know why. Or like, you're <laughs> something with you. like if I have no experience with that, then I can't, it's like, oh, okay, that's too bad. All right. You know, what do you want for lunch? You know, <laughs> you know I'm not going to be able to understand how you're feeling because that part of my brain is just not understanding that. And so it's incredibly important for empathy and compassion um, you know, some normal everyday functioning. And that's definitely something that improves with, with mindfulness. And so, um, so it might be related to that, but again, like the newer data suggests that it's probably also more related to whether you're paying more attention to internal or external, um, uh, events. And so this idea, and that's part of, I think maybe the, um, part of how it's working with the theory of mind. I don't really know a lot about theory of mind, but this idea that, um, you know, and this gets into the mindfulness because with the mindfulness, it's always about, well, how's my body reacting right now? So like, um, 
if something happens, noticing, oh yeah, that like when I talk to certain people, my I hunch up my shoulders, right? Or my, I clench my jaws and clench my fists sometimes, you know, when I'm under certain circumstances, you know, okay, and this is causing me tension. Okay, I'm going to use that information to realize I'm getting tense. I'm going to relax this now, right? Or noticing that, you know, when I talk to people, certain people, there's certain types of thoughts that go through my mind. Like, oh, this person always makes me angry. This person always, you know, makes me feel defensive or something like that. Um, you know, and just be getting more and more in tune with those little things inside you. And that's what the TPJ is doing as well. It's sort of better tuning you into what's going on inside. And and that's so helpful because I think one, I see it in two ways. One is you're thinking less about you and your needs. So you're not at the center of your thinking. Yeah. That also creates that openness and room for other people to take a seat maybe. And then once you, they are in your view, then you begin to think about their needs and their perspective. And yeah. uh, sometimes uh, even if that perspective is not accessible to you, once you, I don't mean force, but that opportunity is created for you, maybe you will take um, all the inventory of that situation or their needs. And and such a beautiful way to uh, kind of... Um, <laughs> be better socialized that way right exactly exactly yeah again again it's not all about me yeah exactly so that brings me to this next thought about um, mindfulness and um you, you kind of started talking about this empathy and compassion um are people who are mindful or practice mindfulness um they, do they have significantly better uh inner states and their capacity to uh, because isn't there, can you distinguish for empathy and compassion? Isn't this acting on your feelings for other people, uh, caring feelings for other people? Yeah, that's come out as one definition. I don't know that everyone has that distinction in their definition, but something definitely coming out, especially out of um, Tibetan Buddhism, they make this distinction that that's a distinction between empathy and compassion is that, you know, empathy is sort of more of a um, a cognitive you know, and sort of getting drowned in the person's story versus compassion is sort of more of a, um, you're less drowned in the story and you're sort of more open just hearing it. And you, there's the, they feel that there's the distinction is that there's this, this strong desire to act to relieve the other person's suffering. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know, but uh, it's certainly, that's one, that's one definition of it. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so this idea that, that it's not just, so it's understanding, but it's also this desire to help alleviate them. You know, I like the Buddhist, uh, saying that strong, uh, soft front and strong back. So mm -hmm. when you meet yeah. people this, in situations, there's a soft front to you, uh -huh. which doesn't mean me weak, but it actually means open and appreciative and yeah. incredibly encompassing of their needs, but firm back is you're not going to compromise your values or giving up your morality or none of that. Exactly. Um, so and it's a combination of two. Yeah. Uh, and then that, that also equanimity, you're staying yeah. strong uh, yeah. without feeling drawn into the flood of other people's emotions. And it's important to know because sometimes the most compassionate thing to do is nothing and to let the person figure it out for themselves. I mean, I truly, that. truly, truly. And I think that's sometimes something that people don't always understand. And so sometimes, you know, people can seem a little, it's like, no. And think about like, sort of like, you know, the little kid who falls down and gets hurt. 
know, the parent goes, oh, baby, baby, you know, and oh, poor thing. You know, the kid's going to start crying versus the parent doesn't say anything. The kid falls down the script and they get up and they run away, you know, and they keep running. <laughs> you know, and so if you don't make a big deal out, you know, and the kids, they, you know, they learn to deal with themselves. So, so sometimes, um, you know, it's, it's not always clear or it's some, not always obvious, but yeah, sometimes the best thing to do is inaction though. I, and so hard, particularly if they are your children or yes. they are the ones who are depending on you. Doing nothing is a very beautiful thing, a yeah. gift. Oh, tell us about now the actual mindfulness training. Um, okay. Do you have some uh, ways you can explain to us what that training looks like? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's very simple. It's one of those things. It's very simple to do. It's very, I won't say difficult, but it takes patience and determination and um, you know, a little emotion regulation in order to really do it consistently every day, you know, and to really that, uh, to really commit yourself to it. Um, and also to really, so you're not just sitting there spaced out, you know, you really have to, it's an active process, a very active process, right? So anyone can do it for a few seconds, but then to really continue to do it nonstop for 40 minutes, that's, that's where the comes in. And I, I should point out, I should also say that no one can do it. Like even like the Dalai Lama is not going to be able to sit there. Well, maybe he could, but you know, even people who've been practicing for 10, 15, 20 years, you know, it's not like they're going to be totally focused for the whole 40 minutes of practicing, you know, even 10 minutes, you know, thoughts are going to come in. Like you can't stop the thoughts. Um, but the question is how quickly can you let go of the thought and come back? Right. And so, so I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit. So it's very simple. So what do you do? So you sit down and um, there's a couple different ways of doing it, but the most common way is you just watch your breath. So just noticing as you're inhaling, you could notice like the air passing through your nostrils or like your chest or your belly inhaling and exhaling. And just noticing, cause again, the, what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment in this open, non-judging way. So just noticing I'm inhaling. Okay. Now I'm exhaling. Inhaling, exhaling, <laughs> you know, it really is that simple. And okay, what are the, what are the sensations? How do I know I'm breathing? Like, so it's not, and so really trying not to think about it and really just feel it. So just feeling the belly expand and contract, right? So yeah, anyone can do that for two, three seconds. The question is, can you keep doing it? Cause of course it's gonna get boring. It's like, okay, I've been doing it for five minutes now. What's going on? <laughs> you know? And then, the doubt comes up and I'm doing it right. And oh, this is hard. You know, my mind keeps wandering, you know, so, which is all just being judgy. <laughs> right. And then the, you know, I got, I got, Oh, I, I knew it was shopping right now. You know, I need to, oh, there's all things that should be doing. No, no, no. That's really <laughs> Okay. So those are the hindrances, right? These are the hindrances. It's like, you know, Oh, and you fall, keep falling asleep. That's another hindrance. Um, you know, doubt that it's working, doubt that I'm doing it right. You know, there's all these different ways that, that you sabotage your own practice. And through all of that, you just have to say, nope, this is, it's just this. And I'm just practicing. Even if I fall asleep, it's okay. I'm practicing. I'm learning. I'm, you know, it's just, even if my mind wanders the whole time, I'm getting something out of it. And it really, it really does show, the data really does show that, that even people whose minds racing the whole time, you are getting stuff out of it. Um, and so, uh, um, and so that's it. And it's just, you know, keeping doing that. And again, you can do you know, I mentioned the Headspace app earlier. Uh, it's very, very popular. It's just 10 minutes a day. And there's a little bit of evidence now demonstrating that even just 10 minutes a day can be beneficial, 
right? And so, because teachers always say you have to do it every day for 40 minutes, but more and more data suggests that, I mean, I, I think it's a lot like exercise, right? And so if yeah. you run every day for half an hour, 45 minutes, obviously you're going to have a very strong body. But even if you run just like 20 minutes, two or three times a week, you're still going to get some benefit. <laughs> Same with meditation. So even if you just do 10 minutes a day, you're going to get some benefit. Um, and, you know, if you can do, say, 30, 40 minutes once a week, great. And if you can do it several times a week, even better. You know, as you we were talking about some of these roadblocks in mindfulness, this cartoon comes to mind where um, this family, um, you know, uh, is on camels. The father is riding the camel uh, in front of the mom and two kids. And he looks very angrily, looks, turns back and says, stop asking me if we are almost there. We are nomads for crying out loud. <laughs> oh, I love that. that <laughs> so is- I feel... <laughs> <laughs> so, so this, these thoughts uh, that, you know, what, one of the surprising things I discovered now that I'm going through my mindfulness meditation teacher training and receiving feedback uh, is this, um, how active and uncontrolled my mind is. Exactly. Oh my God. It's mind blowing. And then secondly, to patiently sit with, sit with it. Uh, one of the analogies I give uh, when I uh, talk to other people who are not um, part of this training is it's like, imagine you're locked in a room with a two-year-old and there's no toy and there's a socket, electric socket. <laughs> and the child keeps putting fingers, want to put fingers in the socket. What will you do? And people come up with things like, oh, take him out of the room. I said, that's not a choice. Then give him a toy. I said, that's not a choice. Talk to the kid. Uh, I said, that's not a choice. Uh, hit the kid. <laughs> I said, that's not a choice. So basically you pick the child up and turn the child away. That's the only thing you have. And I feel this mindfulness practice is literally lifting that two-year-old, turning away from the socket. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I love that analogy. Yeah. Because again, you can't get away from it. You can't get away. You're stuck with your own dang mind. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. And so, but you can get curious about it. Oh, talk about that. That's another very important thing we didn't talk about. And I do want you to talk about play. How does this all relate to improving um, mental health? Because this just, once you open your mind, you create expansiveness, then you be curious. So I want to hear that because that's nothing but play. Yes. Yeah, no, that's, it's really, really, really important. Cause so there's kind of two different ways of trying to do mindfulness practice. So there's some people, so it's important. So backing up a little bit. So we're going to get into the nitty gritty a little bit. Look at you. Yes. Yeah. So there's two things at play. There's attention and there's mindfulness. They're not the same. And this is really important. So attention is just paying attention, right? And not mind wandering. Mindfulness is the awareness and like sort of the more the meta awareness and sort of the monitoring. And so you're trying to pay attention and then mindfulness is what's sort of watching and saying, okay, well, am I paying attention or is my attention starting to wander a moment? And am I paying attention to the right stuff? Exactly. Exactly. And that's executive attention. Yeah, exactly. And then once your mind does start to wander, the mindfulness is noticing, okay, like what are the patterns? And this is where the playfulness comes in and or the, the curiosity. I think curiosity is really important. It's like, so noticing, so for instance, like when I first started practicing, you know, cause I'm a scientist, right? And so I start practicing. It's like, oh, oh, I bet this is happening in my brain. Oh, oh, I can do an experiment. Yeah. And my mind always went to <laughs> science and playing experiments, right? But that was really important information to notice like, okay, 
you know, and so that's also triggers like, okay, when I start thinking about that, put it aside, you know, that's because your mind is looking for ways for distraction, right? And so that's sort of the easy distraction. It's like, okay, no, I can think about that later. Right now, I'm just going to keep paying attention to the breath, right? And so it's like, okay, and I start to start thinking about the brain. No, 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 back, right? And this is like you said, putting shot <laughs> off. So if you sort of know, okay, well, that's the electric shock of today. But then, you know, the next day then, okay, it's going off in some other direction, right? And it's thinking about, you know, I don't know what, you know, oh, that thing that that person said, oh, this person's, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. But that thing that person said, oh, no, 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 that bad person, that person, that person. It's like, okay, clearly I have an issue with this person. And so <laughs> not right now, but when I get done, I'm going to think about my relationship with this person, right? So so that's really the two. And you really, you're trying to develop both of them. And they kind of, you can develop one into them independently. So for instance, like uh, video game players, right? And, you know, these sorts of things, they have really good attention, but no mindfulness. Yes. Versus, but you can also develop mindfulness without necessarily developing intention. Again, if you just practice being sort of open and aware and mindful. But what's really interesting is that they kind of sort of go hand in hand. And that's really how you get to the really advanced meditative states is when you develop both of them and they're because then you're focused and then the minute it starts to, you know, brings it back and then goes off and brings it back. And so when they're really working well together, then you just get into these really deep, beautiful states. And, you know, that feels to me like the deep work state where you are most efficient, mm -hmm. you get things done. There's no stickiness. Exactly. There's nothing, no residue of previous experience or next experience. You're just yeah. as is, you're done, wrapped up, moving on. Exactly. Yeah, it's definitely a flow state. Everyone always asks me, well, how's it different than flow? So meditation really, truly is a flow state. Exactly. Just a great example of uh, 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 explanation of, 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 uh, of a flow state, right? And so, but the idea is that, but you're in a flow state with yourself. So you're not in a flow state with music. You're not in a flow state with sports. You're not in a flow state with your work. You're in a flow state with yourself and your inner workings. And that's been what leads to the, the enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a little bit far away mountain for me, but yes, that's a mountain I'm keeping in my, my eyes on. So as we end, can you tell us a little bit about stress, anxiety, depression, and mindfulness? <laughs> you thought I would never ask. <laughs> exactly. So what is stress? So the way I like to define stress is wanting things to be other than they are, at least emotional stress is wanting things to be different than they are. Right. Because it's sort of like, um, you know, I've got all these deadlines. I've got five hours until this big project is due. And I'm stressing out because, oh, my God, there's only five hours. And how am I going to do this? And, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Right. This whole thing. I can stress all I want. It's not going to change that. Oh, in fact, I only have five hours. It's not going to change the quality of my work. So. I can stress out about it and say, oh my God, I only have five hours. Or I can say, okay, I have five hours. What can I get done in five hours? And just like, okay, I've got five hours. That's all I can do. It's all I've got. I'm going to do my best. And that's all I can do. Right. Um, or, you know, there's that person and it drives me nuts. And no, 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 no. Right. And so you can go on and on and on about that person and how horrible they are and how bad the situation is. Or you can say, okay, this is this person. That's who they are. This is what the situation is. I can do this. Um, but yeah, about it is not going to affect anything. <laughs> so I, can, I have to learn to live with this person. I can try to talk to this person. I can try to change the situation, but just stressing out about it 
because stress really doesn't do anything for you for the most part. I mean, can a moment of stress is good because it's sort of that something needs to be done, right? And so you need that. Like, so one analogy we gave is, um, you know, driving and someone suddenly cuts in front of you. Like you need that moment of, oh my God, you know, to slam on the brakes and swerve out of the way to save your life. You know, you don't, it's not just like being, oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> right now you need that initial um, burst of, you know, anger or frustration or whatever to sort of get things going, but then can you drop it? And that's really what Buddhism is all about is, so it's not about not reacting. You react, but then you let go of it. And then it's like, okay, so you get the stimulus to act. It's like, okay, I've got five hours. I really got to focus now. I got to get the fun. Okay, this person, they're being difficult. I got to do something to address this issue with this person. So I need to do something about it, but I don't have to carry on the, the agitation. So that's what stress is. And that's really what mindfulness is all about is sort of recognizing, okay, my brain is you know, going in circles here and I'm just keep going on like, oh my God, it's five hours, five hours, five hours, you know, and, and, you know, doing something not productive. And so the mindfulness, that's where the awareness comes in, right? So the awareness says, okay, I'm fixated instead of fixated working on what I need to do. I'm fixated on, oh my God, I only have five hours. So I'm going to turn the child away from the fact that I only have five hours and I'm just going to focus on what I need to do, which is get as much done as I possibly can in five hours. <laughs> right. And so that's really, again, sort of how it's, you know, it's again, the, the awareness of what's going on and the habits of the mind. That's really what mindfulness is all about. I love it because it just reminds me of, um, uh, we are tilling the soil for acceptance as yeah. is, this is how it is. This, at the, the worst, best condition, <laughs> nothing is going to change except you can change maybe your anger about it, <laughs> you know, exactly. Yeah. And, but the, you are the person inviting you to take a different stance or different attitude or inculcate different response to the same yeah. situation. Nothing has changed about the situation. <laughs> right. It's just, this is how it is. And so and, I can stress and, out about it, or I can just say, this is how it is. And nothing about that says uh, a defeatist attitude or I give in no. or give up. It's just great, mature response. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like, okay, this is it. So what do we do with it? Yeah. And don't you think that this is what mature prefrontal system looks like anyways, where it has kind of come to terms with life by understanding it has such a large deck of experiences and say, things sometimes go this way, sometimes go this way. Sometimes they just don't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just like, okay. And so whatever happens, I'll then, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get there, you know, Brilliant. So, but right now, right now I'm on this part of the bridge. Okay. And so I'm just worrying about the next steps, <laughs> you know, and doing what I can to get to this goal. And then, yeah. Yeah. So, so again, so, so you're this, not in the future. This you're not, yeah, you're right <laughs> so this is not a fair or a good question, but how would you certify your medication, meditation, <laughs> meditation, uh, self, uh, no, let me rephrase it. How would you, what marks would you give yourself for how well you're doing with your meditation? It's not even a good question. That's not a good question. Are no. you pleased with it? Yeah. Are you pleased with so, your meditation practice? Well, yes. Yeah. Everyone can always do or that. What right? is a good question, actually? What, so, what should we think about? So, the, so, again, this is something that the monk was talking about, and this is really, 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 really important. It's not so much about getting into these deep states. And this is where the mindfulness is really key. It's much more the way to really measure practice is to see how it's influencing your life. Mm. Because I love that. so are you less reactive 
you know, when there's lots of pressure, can you stay focused and calm? You know, when these, you know, all these difficult people are in your lives, how are you dealing with the difficult people in your lives? How are you responding to that? That is how you measure the quality of your meditation practice. And so in that regards, yeah, like my life has changed dramatically since I started practicing. Maybe it would have changed more if I practiced more or, you know, practiced differently, potentially. Yes. But it's clearly what I've done has made a huge impact on my life. So I don't know if it's, you know, I know something is happening for sure. Something is happening. <laughs> and it's so funny because I think my family will describe me as I'm less ambitious, which is kind of counter intuitive, but I feel very pleased with the effort that I make. If it goes anywhere, that's fine. If it doesn't, that's fine. So it's not okay. less ambitious, but I'm more okay with, with whatever. <laughs> Economy. Equanimity, Equanimity yes. yes. Well, as we close, um, do you have uh, suggestions for our audience? What are your two most influential books that have influenced you or you love and think other people should read them as well? Yeah. So a fantastic book, especially for people who are just getting into meditation and want to learn more about it, is a book called Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. That. Yeah. Great title, right? And so it's by yes. uh, Joseph Goldstein. And um, uh, I'm blanking his name right now. Uh, it's one of my reading requirements. I've been reading that. It's oh, amazing. Yeah. Uh, um, the other author, uh, Joseph Jack, Goldstein and Jack Cornfield. Sorry. Yes. Jack, of course. Yes. Yeah. So it's by Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield. Um, okay. So that's, that's Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. And then, um, oh, there's so many good books, right? Uh, another great one is by Sharon Salzberg and it's, uh, um, that's about compassion and I don't know this name of it. Is it, uh, that's not radical compassion. That's, um, yeah, that's Tara Brock. Tara Brock's, Yes. Uh, is a uh, real love. I think it's called real love. I want to say, I think that's the recent one. I heard that interview. I will list that in our show notes for sure. She's got, um, I forget. Oh yeah. I'm horrible with book names. <laughs> So it's because I read them all a while ago. So it's a uh, um, no. That's right. That's the right book. I just looked it right up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So real happiness. Or real, is it real happiness? Real love. Real love. It's real called real love. love. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. There you go. Sorry. So yeah. So those are just a few ones. Yeah. And then um, yeah. You know, there's there's so many there's so many good books. It's called the art of authentic connection. There you go. That's the the real love. Well, thank you so much for being you, being an amazing guest and, and so generous with your thoughts and wisdom and um, really simplifying these complex con concepts. You know, for a neuroscientist, you're very chilled and awesome. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Appreciate that. That's not even, that's, that's what I mean is you, you're so, um, you're able to translate neuroscience so readily. Sometimes that's not easy for everybody. Okay. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Um, thank you, everyone. Stay tuned for our next episode. If you love what you're listening to, please um, share and have a wonderful, robust brain day. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.